Welcome Trinitarians and everyone else. I'm so glad you're here today on the channel that loves atheists. We are going to be responding to uh, a YouTuber called Prophet of Zod as he gives seven questions that he thinks that atheists should ask Christians when in conversation with them about worldview issues. And I'm going to answer those honestly and let's see where the conversation takes us. I should say at the beginning of this that I think that what Prophet of Zod is trying to, uh, to do here is not so much put out some questions that he would like someone like me to just answer in the YouTube community um, or as, uh, you know, a YouTube creator to another YouTube creator or even an apologist to an atheist. I think I think what he's looking for here is some advice that he can give to um, skeptics for when they talk to normal people who are Christians, not weirdos like me. So that should be said because it kind of colors things if you, if you go into it thinking that he's posing these to someone like me. He's not. But I am going to try to answer them. And in doing so, hopefully there are some Christians who maybe saw that video or might be asked some of those kind of questions from people like him or, say, people that are called street epistemologists who ask questions like this about how you arrived at your worldview and things like that. And maybe um, this will give you some things to think about when you formulate responses to those kind of questions. So let's jump in with the first thing that Prophet of Zod, by the way, uh, as I always say on this channel, uh, I appreciate the people that I'm responding to as human beings made in the image of God. And please don't feel like anything I'm saying is intended to be condescending. And it's certainly not intended to be targeting you as an individual. Um, but ideas are not persons and we can respond to ideas. And as I always say, some of the worst things that have ever happened in human history happened because people were afraid to respond to ideas. So there should be no offense uh, that, well, I'll say there's no offense intended toward Prophet of Zod. Um, don't know anything about him from his tone and manner in this video. Seems like a wonderful human being, uh, but I think we need to respond to this. So here we go. We're going to play the first clip and we'll see what he wants to know or what he thinks you should want to know from Christians. Number one, when did you become a Christian and why? Now this is a pretty obvious question, and it's one I would ask a Christian to honestly consider when discussing their faith. But while it can be easy for us to convey it as a gotcha meant to corner them into admitting that they were just born into their religion or whatever, it's important to avoid doing this. Yes, we might suspect that they mostly believe in Christianity because it's the religion of their culture, and maybe that they were locked in during early childhood. But this might not be true for everybody, and even where it is more or less the case, each person's story has a lot of nuance based on their own personal experience. Reducing it to a disrespectful sounding simplification will put them on guard and might get them either shutting down on you or defending themselves with easy, simplified pat answers, which doesn't encourage the kind of conversation we're looking for. But if you instead ask this in an open, friendly, sincere way, actually being ready to hear them and make them feel heard, you can ask questions that help them think openly about how and why they became Christian. Sure. They probably didn't do so because they heard amazing arguments for God, and I doubt they chose Christianity after a careful exploration of multiple religions. However, you're not going to immediately convince a Christian of this, and doing so shouldn't be your goal. But maybe you can get the juices flowing so that, over time, they start introspecting more about a process they might not have thought a lot about. And who knows, maybe you'll come away with a richer understanding of the person and their faith journey as well. If you're not ready for that, indeed seeking it, I'd say you're not ready to be an honest, respectful participant in the conversation. Okay, so first of all, I love, I love the way he points out that you might not be ready to have this conversation. I, this is something I say a lot of times when uh, I'm talking with Christians who may want to respond to a particular provocateur on YouTube or um, in their own lives, is you might not be ready for that conversation if, if you're not going to kind of be cool, want to understand them, want to understand more about them, how they came to believe what they believe, because the idea should be caring about the other, other person from a Christian perspective, loving the other person. And I think that similar things uh, atheists like Prophet of Zod would say as well. So uh, let's let's take a look at, um, I can only answer for myself, but I can uh, I can speculate about what I think is true about others. I was born into a pastor's family and intellectually believed Christianity was true. That is to say, in terms of like believing that the facts were true. Um, I believe that for as long as I can remember. 
theologically speaking, I believe I actually became a Christian early on when I began thinking about these things. Apologetics was not part of it, and it's certainly true that my culture and family oriented me incredibly strongly toward Christianity. As he suggests to his atheist listeners, I did not become a Christian after hearing incredible arguments for God or a careful examination of multiple religions. So that that's my honest answer. And um, this this comes up a lot is uh, and, and he's wanting to caution people against just kind of pointing this out as a kind of a gotcha moment. And I really appreciate that, that, oh, well, you were you just believe this because you were indoctrinated into it as a youngster or it's all you knew or culturally or whatever like that. But it is important to note that many, many individuals who came to Christ came to Christ from alternative worldviews, and arguments were a big part of it. I recently asked, because I'm thinking about doing a series, every time I hear someone say that apologetics usually doesn't work or it's only really for people who already believe to make them feel better, I certainly agree that there is some utility there. But that's not the only purpose for apologetics, and I think that the inefficacy of Christian apologetics and arguments and defenses of the Christian faith for evangelism, for seeing people from other worldviews come to be Christians for the first time, um, I think those are underrated or underappreciated by skeptics. Um, and I don't think that Prophet Zod is doing this, but I've I've actually, you know, in the past thrown out examples from comments on my YouTube videos and thrown them out on Twitter or somewhere saying, hey, look, here's this person says they became a Christian because of the arguments and evidences. And uh, no matter how many times I do that, uh, some atheists will say, well, yeah, but there's some particular case about that person that means that that testimony doesn't count, that that uh, change doesn't count. Well, you can do that, I mean, if that's what you're committed to. But the fact is, often people do come to believe because of, partly because of evidence. I don't, I'm, we're going to get to this later, but I don't ever think that anyone makes a worldview shift of this magnitude only because of one thing, be that emotions, um, desire, a desire to sin, a, a desire to get free from sin, a desire, uh, 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 the evidence, family, friends. I, I, I think there's always, we are complex human beings, and so I think there's usually more to it than that. And we'll talk more about that later. But the deeper question is, why should this bother us? And maybe Prophet of Zod says it shouldn't necessarily bother you. But I think the tone of the video, unless I'm missing something, is to get the Christian to evaluate how they came to believe and, and go down that road a little bit and try to figure out, do I really have good reasons for believing this? And if you didn't come be, come to Christianity because of these arguments, then maybe in, the arguments were an afterthought or something that, that helped you feel better, but they're really not all that valuable. Now, Prophet of Zod didn't exactly say that, but that, of course, wouldn't be true, would it? I mean, it could be that I came to believe that the earth is round because I read it in a comic book. Well, that's not necessarily a good reason to believe that the earth is more or less round because you read it in a comic book, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. I could find out later that I was true, that, that, that it's true in spite of how I came to hold it. So it could be that a particular Christian became a Christian just because uh, they were raised in it or because from a very early age they were predisposed toward it. And as I said, oriented toward it in a pastor's family who had no knowledge of the evidence and didn't care. I just believed it was true about the way that the world is. Um, but then later you actually do find out there's really good evidence. Um, so this shouldn't bother anybody, I don't think. I think a Christian should be perfectly um, confident in saying, yeah, I, I was first exposed to Christianity. I have deep roots in this because all my life I've pretty well been raised to believe that it's true. Um, that's not the problem would be if then the person says that's how I know that it's true. Well, that would be a problem. But of course, um, that's not really a problem for those of us who don't look at that as a part of the evidence. Now, that doesn't count in favor of any particular perspective. It's just a biographical fact about the individual. Uh, let's go on to the next one, and let's see what he has to say. Number two, what role have arguments for the existence of God played in your understanding of your faith? I find this a good follow-up to the previous question, as I honestly don't think arguments for God have changed many people's minds about anything. In general, I see apologetics mainly as after-the-fact rationalizations designed to help people feel better about what they already believe. But is it helpful just to blurt this out to the average Christian? Probably not. So I'd suggest instead asking questions that might get them thinking about the role apologetics have played in their faith journey, such as, When did you first start hearing arguments for God? Which arguments have you found most compelling? How have they affected your thinking? 
Were they what actually led you to Christianity, or did they otherwise significantly define your Christian beliefs? Or did they mainly just reinforce what you already believed? There are a lot of ways to ask these questions, both in tone and phrasing, so it will be important not to present them as leading or demanding questions. Sincerely be ready to hear what the Christian says, and hopefully prompt them to think through how they came to believe what they do, and what role arguments played in the process. Uh, did arguments for God, what arguments do I think are the best? I think that uh, the Kalam and the teleological arguments are the best arguments for God's existence, uh, versions of them. Uh, and I think uh, for Christianity specifically, the resurrection, but also uh, an abductive case of if God exists on the basis of those previous two arguments, what uh, does it is it meaningful or reasonable to believe that if such a God exists and created what resulted in however he did that uh, re relational human beings who want relationship and value relationship? Is it reasonable to assume, is it plausible to assume that he would have at some point tried to communicate with those individuals? Yes. Okay. And then I do a simple uh, analysis of worldviews. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But for various reasons, I, call, I can cull away. I think I can, if we just look at the major world religions, um, you've got uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, and then uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. I've got logical problems with Buddhism and Hinduism. Uh, of the Abrahamic religions, uh, we could say a whole lot more, but at the very least, there's a guy smack in the middle of there who uh, Orthodox Christians um, argue claimed to be God or acted as though he was God and with God's authority. And this particular person who, as far as we know, never traveled far from his place of birth and uh, also never really wrote anything down, so far as we know, uh, yet is without question the most influential human being in all of history. Uh, and claim to be speaking on behalf of God, what God wants human beings to know. Uh, so there's a, there's a case, but also the resurrection, obviously. The resurrection would be a good Christian-specific argument. Those are the arguments that I find most compelling. There are obviously many more that I've defended on this channel, but those are the ones that I find most compelling. Um, are those what led me to be a Christian? Well, uh, on the basis of my answer to the last question, no. And um, uh, let's see, what else did, did he ask? Oh, has, have they... Uh, when did I become aware of them? Um, generally speaking, around the early 2000s, maybe 2000 or something like that, but somewhere around that area. Um, had a close friend who walked away from Christianity, began to become somewhat antagonistic toward my Christian beliefs. And so I, I began to take apart what I believe and put it back together to see what holds water. And so in, in the early 2000s, maybe around 2000, 1999, 2000, something like that. Um, and uh, let's see, has it, let's see, he says, did arguments for God seriously define your Christian beliefs or something like that? I'd say yes, because of issues related to arguments for God. Um, I have shifted on a number of things that are somewhat doctrinal, not really doctrinal, but kind of related to how I understand Scripture, how I understand uh, my Christian faith. One of those would be the age of the earth, the age of the universe, how God interacts in the events of history, the nature of time, among other things. So, yeah, and that's all in addition to, because of Christian apologetics, I've actually um, you know, had to study areas of human inquiry that are that go beyond Christian apologetics, like philosophy and logic and things like this that have helped me and uh, hermeneutics, interpretation, stuff like that, extra biblical materials, history that has actually helped me to understand my faith in a greater way as well. And even when I'm not interested in apologetic type things, defending the Christian faith, just reading scripture and understanding what is probably being said by the author has been incredibly helpful to my Christianity. But the apologetics directly, the arguments for God's existence, he, he says arguments for God, and I think what he means by that is arguments for God and then stuff related to the— I think it just means apologetics. And yeah, it has, it has been helpful in affecting directly how I define my Christianity, though it is not how I initially came to Christianity. So um, maybe that's helpful. Let's move on to the next thing. Number three, do you think similar forms of argument, or any line of argumentation— would get you to consider the existence of a different God or of any non-Christian supernatural phenomenon? This is clearly a follow-up to question two, and the point is probably pretty clear. If a Christian came to their faith because they were convinced by arguments and remain in it because they continue to find those arguments most compelling, then it seems they would remain in a state of flux, constantly ready to, in fact seeking to, hear and absorb arguments for other beliefs. If argumentation changed their mind about Christianity, 
Might they have potential to get argued into Islam, or Buddhism, or New Age religions, or UFOs, or any number of other things? And wouldn't they be curious to investigate this possibility? This, like previous points, is something a Christian has to be ready to introspect about. They need to want to understand this part of themselves, and if coming to do so leads them to see their faith differently, it will do so by degrees in ways that don't always meet your expectations. Even many open-minded Christians may put up resistance to this question. One obvious way being to just flatly state that the evidence for Christianity is way better. But where did they get this impression? Was it from literature from within their faith by apologists for their faith? And if so, have they really considered other arguments, or just listened to speakers they already agree with characterizing those arguments in a way that reinforces their faith? The world being a big place full of smart people who hold many different points of view, might apologists for these points of view do an equally persuasive job of presenting equally convincing arguments, if you actually listen to those people themselves? And, here's one huge key, if you did listen to them, would you feel at ease about the possibility that they were right, and ready to change what you believe depending on what they said? Or would you enter the conversation on guard, finding the possibility of changing your faith disturbing? The fact is, if a Christian came to faith for purely rational reasons, they should be equally ready to leave it for purely rational reasons. If this is not the case, it's worth considering whether there are deeper, more personal reasons that they became and remain Christian. Also, notice I've never said anything about evidence. I've always referred to arguments. There's a reason apologists have to use lines of arguments for God instead of showing us evidence. And there's a reason arguments for God could be used to argue for practically any other religion or phenomenon. But that's a lot to unpack right now. Yeah, so um, there are actually a number of things that we should get into here. First of all, I want to say that Christians actually, Christianity actually accounts for non-Christian supernatural phenomenon. Now, that's what he asked about. Could arguments or whatever get you to come to believe that... Um, that there's other non-Christian supernatural phenomenon, that that's real. And we actually expect that. Christianity actually uh, posits as a system-dependent belief the existence of angels and demons and supernatural stuff that God is not in favor of. So, so yeah, we, we would expect that that would be the case. If I were seriously considering evidence for an alternative religion and truly started to think that the evidence for say Islam look like it was really shaking out like, Oh man, I, I don't like this, but I think that maybe, uh, this, this evidence is good. Um, my bias would obviously become a problem in trying to deal with that. Um, uh, but would it be disturbing? Of course it would be disturbing. See, this is where I, I want us to be honest about the fact that whether you're an atheist who is now committed to your atheism. And I realize that becoming an atheist might've been something that was difficult. So I'm not downplaying that at all, but whether you're an atheist now and evaluating some other worldview like Christianity, or if you're a Christian and looking at other worldviews, or if you're a Muslim and looking at other worldviews, the notion that you, it looks like maybe you're wrong, of course is going to be very disturbing because our worldviews and particularly our views about God and what is God like and what is the nature of reality and if there is no God, you know, those are issues that are going to have major impact. They sit centerpiece in our worldviews. And so as a result, of course, that's going to be disturbing. And of course, bias plays a part of this. But here's the thing that I want to I want to weigh bring back into the mix here is that worldview changes of this magnitude are never adopted merely um, because of the arguments. So I do not think that any particular atheist out there became an atheist only because of arguments or because of the lack of evidence or whatever. I just don't believe it because that would be to say something about the human experience that I think is quite shallow and not very sophisticated, which is that we don't always even understand our own motivations for doing things and what uh, moves us. We are very complex. And as a result, our reasons for doing things our bias is always going to come into it. Our desires are always going to come into it. And it is virtually impossible to make a decision of that magnitude purely on one thing, all because of one thing. And so I, I just, I, so yeah, of course, your bias is going to be there. Now, of course, what we want to do is 
recognize that. And by the way, if you don't recognize that, if you are one of those people that walks around acting like the only thing that interests you is the evidence, if you're one of those people, the literature shows that you actually may have a, a larger bias blind spot than most people. So um, you got to recognize that bias and then work to minimize that bias and try to make the courageous right decision of standing on the courage of what should be your convictions based on the evidence that you're seeing. So uh, would it disturb me? Yeah, of course it would disturb me. There are a lot of atheists that if they started coming to believe that Christianity is true, it would disturb them too. There are a lot that would be thrilled, I'm sure, about that. But people are complicated. And I think that the way this is presented is as though the only thing really at play at any given moment is, is evidence and arguments or not. And I just think it's more involved than that. Um, these alternative religions that would come to, uh, that would be presented that perhaps, it, hey, if I came to Christianity because of the arguments and evidences, now again, <laughs> I don't think you ever make moves just because of those, but if I, let's just say I did. Um, then, then could I be equally attracted to some other worldview if I thought the evidence and arguments stacked up for it? Yeah, probably, if the evidence and arguments is, did stack up. And we would just need to look at those. We would need to look and see, does it do the evidential reasons for accepting this position uh, stack up against Christianity? Now, as Prophet of Zod rightly and cleverly points out, many Christians will say, yeah, of course, but Christianity's stuff is just better. And I do agree that Christianity stuff is just better. But, um, but are there, he says something like our debaters and, or not debaters, but are the thinkers, the really smart thinkers and apologists for those other religions, couldn't they put together a case that is as persuasive? I don't think so. Um, is it possible that through the use of rhetoric um, and, and uh, being a better speaker, perhaps, like if you have a debate and there's a Christian guy over here and there's a, uh, Muslim guy over here, the Muslim is just better at debating, more persuasive. Could he make more of an impression? Yes. But if we're looking at the arguments, are the arguments themselves as impressive as the arguments for Christianity? Well, I'm a Christian. Of course, I don't think they are. And I, but, but I think that um, we have a mountain of literature that I think bears that out and debates that bear that out. And so I would point people to look at those and evaluate those. So is it possible if the evidence was better but I don't think the evidence is better. And what someone would have to do, what another religion would have to do, is to knock down the best reasons to believe that Christianity is true, principally the resurrection of Jesus as a real historical event. And, then, and of course, the, uh, the claims that Jesus made. You'd have to give me a reason to believe that Christianity does not, is not meant to be... Um, well, if they knocked down the resurrection, that'd be fine. But if they didn't knock down the resurrection, but still tried to incorporate Christianity, as some Hindus might do, um, then one would have to deal with the passages that seem to support Christian exclusivism, that Jesus thought of himself as the only way to God, the only way to the Father. Um, you'd have to knock those down. So you'd have to do one or the other, that or the resurrection. I don't think you can do it. And then they would have to erect something else in its place that is more plausibly true than uh, the Christian position. So I don't see that happening. I've tried to, I've tried to look into that stuff. He asks, um, have, have you, uh, looked into the arguments and evidences given by others who are not Christians? I have, has the average Christian? Probably not. But when people are having worldview questions, I happily and confidently recommend that they watch debates. I think debates are great because debates actually give you what the Christian's going to say, what the opponent is going to say, what the Christian has to say back to that, what the opponent has to say back to that. And while I always think people should read books, read more books, um, the truth is that debates are a good microcosm of a book to give you the most important pieces on both sides of a particular issue if they're good debaters. So, you know, I, I think... Um, I think we try to do that. I, I just, I do think, I mean, you suggested right, Prophet of Zod. I just think the Christian stuff is better. But there's another piece to this, and that is, I wouldn't, I can't offer this to you, Prophet of Zod, or to any particular listener as an evidence or a reason why you should believe that it's true. But um, we do, we Christians do believe that we have the the witness of the Holy Spirit to us directly in, within us, um, confirming the truth of all of this. And we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. But I think that's an important piece of this. So I can't, I can't show you my experience of God and say, therefore, you should believe. Um, that would be nice, and maybe it does work for some people. But I can't offer that as a reason why, why you should believe that's, that's very strong. But it does, for me, serve as a powerful reason to believe. And so um, given that we already have this evidence that I think is better, 
I think that uh, we should we should uh, th that that's perfectly reasonable for me. And so it's going to be very hard. One would not only have to knock down these reasons to believe that Christianity is true, but for me personally, or for any Christian personally that has that experience, one would also have to better explain that. And attempts have been made, but not to my satisfaction. Um, one thing else, he doesn't go into too much detail about this, but there's been a lot said about it, that arguments don't really count as evidence. And with arguments, you can make anything true. Well, not if they're good arguments. I mean, in a certain sense, what uh, Prophet of Zod is doing is laying out, you know, in sort of a Socratic way, asking questions. Um, he, he's trying, or at the very least, he's trying to convince the atheist listener that they should approach uh, conversations this way. Um, in other words, he's arguing that this is a good way to approach this. Arguments, if they're done right, can't just show that anything is true. If they do, they'll have flaws in them, and hopefully we can point those out, or undefended claims. And so I, I just think this fails. Arguments can serve as evidence. But better than that, when we come to testimonies, I'll show you how I understand evidence, and maybe that'll be more helpful. So at this point, let's move on to that. Number four. How do you account for testimonials from other religions? This flows pretty naturally from question three, in that both ask Christians to think about whether the things that reinforce their beliefs don't reinforce other religious beliefs as well. More than arguments for God, Christian belief is based on testimonials, which can include anything from the classic Christian idea of a testimony, you know, the story of what they were like as a believer, how they came to Christ, and how their life was changed afterward, as well as anecdotes of times they believe supernatural things happened. In conversations with believers I grew up with, I often run into tales of how they were about to get hurt but felt themselves mysteriously brushed away from danger, or how they spoke to demons and cast them out of people or whatever. And I'm convinced these stories are usually told by people who honestly believe. So breaking down the logic of what actually happened and pointing out ways they might be mistaken can get really personal, depending on the story. But here's the thing. People from religions all around the world have similar experiences that sound just as convincing, feel just as real to them, and carry just as much personal and emotional meaning. Their lives were changed by religion. They've seen miracles or come face to face with their culture's version of supernatural evil. They feel they have a relationship with their deity. And many express these ideas with the same level of conviction as a Christian in close to the same terms. So do they not deserve the same respect as Christian testimonies? Should they be given less benefit of the doubt? If testimonies lend credibility to Christianity, do they not do the same for other religions? And in the end, what differentiates Christian anecdotes from other anecdotes? Really thinking about these questions can open up a huge can of worms, since testimonials are a huge part of what validates faith in the mind of the average Christian. And while they won't prove Christianity wrong, they show that testimonials do little, if anything, to set Christianity apart from any other set of supernatural claims. The core point here is that promoting its own testimonies while hiding believers from those of other religions creates the illusion that Christians have a body of experience shared by nobody else, not only making them feel a false confidence in their faith, but minimizing the beliefs and experiences of others. Hopefully getting a Christian to think about this will at least shed some light on the false certainty they get from testimonies, as well as giving them a better understanding of, and respect for, people of other religions with whom they actually have a lot in common. Okay, the first thing I want to say, and I, I think this is relevant, and, I, and this is not at all meant to be an insult to, or a gotcha moment for Prophet of Zod, but isn't it the case that you say, you know, we, if, we, if we would expose ourselves to the reality that people in other religions have some of the same... Um, you know, they feel that they have the same experiences of God that we do, just some other God, and that they have a relationship with God. And wouldn't that make, wouldn't that be, help us to value, I don't know exactly how I said it, but value people better because we recognize that they have their own experiences and that sort of thing, and we don't want to devalue their personal experiences. But ultimately, though Prophet of Zod is encouraging people to be very uh, friendly and um, respectable and respectful in carrying out this method of question asking, isn't that ultimately the end game is to is to not just get the Christian to uh, put himself in a position where he recognizes that other people have experiences that they think are experiences of God as well. But ultimately, these experiences aren't really of God, that there's a better explanation for them. I think that becomes clear as we get into the next couple of questions. But isn't that really where we're going? Wouldn't that then devalue my personal experience of God as well as everyone else's experience of what they think is God? 
I, that, that's very odd to me. I, I'm not sure I get that. But um, maybe he wouldn't say that. Maybe he wouldn't say that's what he's trying to do. But uh, let's think about this. So testimonials. Uh, this is actually a great reason to encourage churches to have apologetic programs in their church, because I agree with him. I think that it is not good apologetics to argue, you should believe this because I've had a personal experience of God. Now, if like the earliest disciples of Christ, you could point to experiences that were had in a group and there's stuff like that that can kind of support itself. That's a different story. But um, just saying, I've had this personal experience of God. My life is better. I tell people in church all the time, every religion will say that. Muslims will say that. Hindus will say that. What, how, how does that how does that differentiate? Obviously, we believe that something special is going on with within Christianity, with our relationship with God, because we're Christians, right? But in terms of offering evidence, like that's important for you as an individual, and that's something that's meaningful and important to talk about with other Christians. But um, for the individual who you're trying to reach, uh, you need to give them arguments and evidence, not just... Um, the testimony, although you can then put a little gravy on it and talk about the testimonial side of things as well. Um, so I think that that's Im important to, to throw in there. Um, what's the difference, he says, between Christian anecdotes and other religions' anecdotes about experiences of God or whatever? Well, because we think that the Christian anecdotes are underridden by good reasons to believe, arguments, evidences, those sorts of things. I mean, it all really does come back to that. And a lot of these questions um, are, are, you know, kind of peripheral to that, or they're about the Christian life, or they're, they're really about the individual being asked, you know, what about your experience? You know, the question about, were you raised in this? Is that really how you first came to believe? Yes. What does that have to say about the truth of Christianity? Um, were the arguments the things that were really instrumental in you coming to believe? No. What does that say about the truth of Christianity? You know, th these are important questions to ask. Um, would you be convinced by other religions? Um, complex question. We've answered it here, but what does that say about the truth of Christianity? Ultimately, we should be interested in truth. And a lot of times, I don't, I don't know if this guy considers himself to be a street apologist, but a lot of times what the street apologists will do is they'll ask questions that have to do with a person's internal psychology instead so much of the truth, the, the, the good reasons to believe that actually do exist. And that's, of course, where we want to focus most of our guns. Now, testimonies, um, can be personal. And again, that's for the individual. That's very powerful. It might not be powerful for anyone else. Um, but what, but there are secondhand testimonies and he alludes to this. Uh, let, let's just say that, um, a particular person says my father was involved in X, Y, and Z. It was destroying his life. It was not good for him or the family or anyone else in the community. But when he became a Christian, um, we saw a change that was very rapid or immediate or perhaps long, but obviously there, the way he thought about life changed dramatically and his walk with Christ served as a source of conviction in him that guided him to uh, living a better life. And for that reason, I believe because I watched him go through it. Okay, that is secondhand. The testimony of that man is still that man's testimony. It's still internal to him. But others did see something that gives them reason to suspect perhaps this is true. Conclusive? No. Certainty? No. But here's how I think about evidence. Um, I said this in a previous show. Um, I'm looking across the river at um, Henderson, Kentucky, from where I'm at in Evansville, Indiana. And if a man were to come to me and say that at a baseball field um, over there, he saw... Um, a UFO land in the middle of the field and uh, then take off again. And no one could explain it, but he saw it. Okay, do I have reason to believe that's true? You might be tempted to say no, but actually I have more reason now to believe that's true than I did before he told me that. One person's testimony now does count for something. It's a non-zero. It counts for something in a non-zero way. Am I convinced? Absolutely not. We know that there are people that say all kinds of things. I'm not anywhere near convinced, but it's a non-zero movement of the needle. Now I have some reason to believe this that I did not have before he told me that. Now, what if 20 people tell me that they were all there and they all saw it and they, you know, they talk with each other about it? Now I have even more reason to believe it's true. What if an entire uh, baseball stadium or whatever tells me that they all saw it and perhaps the mayor and a leading uh, you know, academic from a nearby university and... Uh, a lawyer and you know all these people are there and a police investigator were all there and they all saw this. Now, do I have more reason? Well, if I have more reason to believe this now than I did when just one person told me, 
uh, then clearly there has been an increase in reasons to believe, i.e. there has been an increase in some kind of evidence. So uh, testimonials can serve for something. And if a person sees a dramatic change in the life of someone they love, that does count for something if the person is attributing that to Christianity. Is it conclusive? No, it is not. Do other religions have that? Yes, they do. But it does count for something, is all I'm saying. And a person would then be justified in having more reason to believe, in their own mind, that Christianity is true. But I wouldn't think that would get you there completely. I think you still need undergirding reasons to believe, like for a person who doesn't know anything about apologetics, could be the personal witness of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And again, we're going to get to hearing from God and all that sort of thing. But then second, um, also there is, uh, uh, this, uh, um, arguments and evidences that, that are there. So I think all that's important, but let's move on now to the next thing. Number five, where did you get your understanding of atheists? Now this one might sound self-absorbed, concerned more with perception of us than with a Christian's experience, but it is a legitimate and valuable question. It addresses core issues of how Christians build their understanding of others and it's key for them to think about if they're really seeking to converse with atheists. In my experience, very few Christians have interacted with openly identifying atheists, so pretty much their entire idea of us and of atheism comes from things they've learned within Christianity. And of course you know what most of it sounds like. We are generally depraved, we deny God because we want to sin, we think the universe came from nothing, we have no basis for morality, and so on. In my experience, this solidifies many Christians' understanding of who we are before they ever talk to us, to the extent that I've often found myself unable to get someone to hear my actual position once I've explained it. So it would be helpful if, in a constructive and friendly way, you ask a Christian what they think about atheists and where they got those ideas. If, upon reflection, they realize they learn most of it from other believers or from the Bible, they will hopefully be willing to rebuild most of their understanding by conversing with, you know, you and other atheists. Of course, this will be a process, it may have its ups and downs, and it depends on the openness of the person you're speaking with. Okay, so um, I got my understanding of atheists. I actually didn't hear too much, or I don't recall hearing too much at all about atheism uh, growing up. Uh, I lived in Florida until I was 10 years old, um, and at that time in the American South, uh, you know, the general thinking, especially among church people, is, yeah, I mean, there's atheists out there. They might be off in godless New York or California somewhere, but not where we live. Um, if that's offensive, I'm just messing around. But 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 I don't think I heard too much about atheists. I knew that there was such a thing, but I don't think I was told like that they suck the blood of children or anything. In fact, the first time I heard a phrase like that was from an atheist. Um, my first exposure to, to atheism really was from a friend who became an atheist. Uh, so I, and I think you're going to see more of that in the future. I, I think um, as the Internet is now, you know, we, everybody's got the Internet no matter where they are, even out in the sticks. Um, people are hearing from people like you. And um, actually, that that might be a thing. Uh, you know, what, people can get a bad taste in their mouth from Christians in a lot of ways. But one way is their interactions online. People could get a bad taste in their mouth for atheists because of atheist interactions online. There's some people that are very kind and friendly and reasonable, and there's some people that um, just act atrocious online on both sides of that. And so uh, that's something to, to, to keep in mind there. But um, I think you're going to see less of that caricature as newer generations come up and uh, atheist speakers are more obviously accessible online. Um, but I don't really, there's obviously things we could talk about here, but for the sake of time, let me just say, he's basically encouraging atheists to live as decent people who express why they hold the moral values that they do and clearly explain what they believe about the nature of reality. I'm all for that. In fact, that's the first thing I encourage atheists to do in my own approach. Um, I, to tell me about their worldview why, before, you know, when I'm talking to them, just as he wants the Christian to do most of the talking at first, you know, ask them questions that, that let them talk. I do the same thing. My, my process starts with, hey, how do you answer, just so I understand where you're coming from, how do you answer the biggest questions of life? Primarily these, how did we get here? What's the meaning of life if there is one? And what happens when we die? Because 
when someone tells you they're an atheist, there's all kinds of atheists. When someone tells you they're a Muslim, there's all kinds of Muslims. When someone tells you there's a Mormon, there's all kinds of Mormons. I want to know specifically how they answer those questions and approximate basically from there where they're at. I don't have everything I need to know. So, um, so yeah, explain, you know, be a nice person, explain why, who you are and why I'm all for that. There's not really a problem with this one too much. So let's move on to, uh, we're getting done here, but this is where it gets really interesting. Number six, have you ever felt the presence of God? If so, what does it feel like? And how do you distinguish it from the emotional or calming experiences that accompany music or meditation? Many evangelicals would say that they're not in a religion and that they instead have a relationship with God. So this being the case, they must interact with him. And this interaction largely comes in the form of feeling his presence, depending, of course, on the denomination, church, and person. In fact, God's presence is what defines his existence and personality for many of them. To the extent that it said you can argue apologetics all day long, but in the end you can't explain away the experience of God. And honestly I wouldn't try, because doing so verges on trying to tell Christians what they think and feel inside, which is as disrespectful and unconstructive as Christians trying to tell us why we're atheists and won't often get a conversation anywhere. Instead you might ask what exactly happens when they feel God's presence, just taking their own internal experience for what it is. What do they actually feel during times of prayer or worship? Is it a warm feeling? A sense of peace? Of clarity? If there's anything more, what is it? Depending on what they say, you might ask what convinces them that the experience is, or comes from God, and how much they might just label the experience based on what they've already learned about Christianity. Of course, there are all kinds of shortcuts a person can use to cope with these questions, but to whatever extent a Christian openly ponders them, there's a good chance it will get them to notice similarities between experiencing God's presence and the feelings that accompany musical and meditative experiences. In light of this, you might also ask what steps the person takes to experience God. There's usually some preparation that goes into helping conjure God's presence, including setting up the right environment, choosing music sets, bringing yourself into a certain state of mind, surrounding yourself with like-minded people, hearing inspiring words, and so on. And of course, almost all of these run suspiciously parallel to non-religious exercise that bring people, sometimes including Christians, into similar states of mind. Of course, it can always be said that these experiences just counterfeit God's presence or are even demonic, so as always, it takes time for Christians to digest these ideas and make what they will of the parallels. I can't emphasize enough that you need to respect a believer's space and give them room to process their doubts, or not, in their time and way, just as you probably did. Okay, um, with this, oh, you're seeing the light on my shirt here from the window. Sorry about that. I don't normally record this time of day. But um, yeah, so feeling God, in, in terms of the physical side of those experiences, I actually think that whether you're listening to music or some other religion worshiping some God or, or whatever, um, I you know, people talk about the different ways that they have had similar experiences to what they think Christians are talking about when they talk about experiencing God. And, um, and I think that there's a good reason for that. And you might not expect me to say this, but I think in terms of the physical side of those experiences, I think they utilize the same brain systems. Um, there, I did a whole episode on this, and I'll link it in the description, but Andrew Newberg presented a, uh, he's done a lot of work on this. He's talked about these things. What, what is happening in the brain when someone is um, having a religiously informed experience. And it's very interesting. Um, I, there's a book that I don't think is written by Christians, written by neuroscientists from years ago uh, called Why God Won't Go Away. And I, I remember it dealt with a lot of this. It's the blood flow to certain parts of your brain are slowed and there's a focus on other parts of the brain. And it creates, uh, it's one of the things at least, that creates these feelings of um, whatever. We'll, we'll talk about the content of those feelings in just a moment, but the, the feeling that people have when they're feeling God or think they're feeling God or are in the midst of a concert uh, that where there's something almost worshipful going on or whatever. And it might surprise you that I say that, but don't call me a heretic yet, Christians. I'll come back in just a moment and tell you what I think is going on there, why that's important. So here's Andrew Newberg talking about it. The question as to whether or not we are hardwired for religion and spirituality, uh, I think is, is a very important one. When we look at how the brain works, it looks like the brain is able to 
very easily engage in religious and spiritual practices, ideas, and experiences. All the brain scan studies that we've done show that there are multiple parts of the brain that seem to get involved. So it really does look like the brain is so easily capable of having these experiences. Now exactly how that ability got into the brain is of course a much more complex and both philosophical and scientific question. The scientists would say, well maybe it was through millions of years of evolution that uh, because being religious or spiritual was an adaptive process, it got incorporated into the biological mechanisms of the brain. And there's certainly a lot of reasons to support that. And of course, if you're a religious individual, it also makes sense that if there's a God up there and we're down here, that we would have a brain that's capable of communicating to God, praying to God, doing the things that God needs us to do. Otherwise, there would be this kind of fundamentally silly disconnect. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to have any kind of interaction with God. Yeah, and notice that the first thing that he mentions, it's almost like he's setting up a dichotomy here, um, but it, it's actually, it doesn't have to be. I mean, you could have, you could have this process have come about through evolutionary means or whatever for a particular, at least it seems like it was for a particular reason that, that serves in your biological survival or flourishing or whatever, and that also be how God intended for you to have this capacity. But it is an interesting thing, and that's why this is not dealt with shallowly by people like Andrew Newberg, because they recognize that, wait a minute, this is really weird that we have this capacity. Why is this here? How did it get here? What's This is interesting. It's almost like you know, you've got this antenna for God or something for having these religious experiences. So um, the physical side of that, just like I think that I have a hand that is able to grip things because God intended for man to have or to ultimately have a hand that is able to grip things. I think that I have a brain that is wired up for religious experiences because God wanted us to have religious experiences, experiences with him. And uh, that people can exercise that in contexts that are not worship of the one true God or experiences of the one true God, but are aimed at some idol, we might say, are that's perfectly to be expected on Christianity because Christ, I mean, just read the Bible. There, there are obvious, uh, you know, warnings about worshiping. That is, we could say, utilizing your ability to have a religious experience, not toward the wrong thing, but toward the right thing. But then on beyond, beyond that, I would also say, I don't think that something physical is all that's going on. And again, when a Mormon tells me that they experience the quote unquote burning in the bosom that testifies to them that Mormonism is true, I don't question that they had that experience. Don't worry about that with me. I question the content of that experience or better yet, the source of that experience. That's what really matters the most to me. But then also, um, you know, I, again, I think that, do I have experiences that, like that? Yes, of course I do. But I wouldn't just trust those experiences. The, the, that goes into a larger uh, realm of reasons why I hold the positions I do and what my relationship with God looks like. Obviously, I still want arguments and evidence and things like that to go underneath these things. But I do have my own personal experiences of God. And what is it like to feel God? Well, there are obviously those times in worship uh, when I'm corporately in church with other believers or privately when I'm praying. Um, or singing songs myself alone to God or whatever, that I have that experience. And I think that side of it is something like what other people have in other religions or um, in, in a rock concert or whatever else. Um, but I think it's deepened here. And one of the reasons that I think it's deepened here is because I have had moments where I felt like it actually goes beyond that and transcends that. Now, those have not been often. In fact, there's a Christian apologist, Jonathan McClatchy, who we had on the show not too long ago. And I saw him saying something on social media recently about how he believes that Christianity is true purely because of the publicly available evidence. I hope I'm representing you correctly, Jonathan. I, I don't mean to miss uh, to, to communicate that wrongly. Um, but uh, so, so not everyone has quite the same experience I have. But there have been times that went way beyond the sort of experiences I've had in worship or in prayer. For instance, there was occasion I've talked about on the show before when I was in the midst of an incredible personal tragedy, the sort of thing that some people commit suicide over. And yet I went and I was at a gas station in Green Hill at Green Hills Mall in Nashville, Tennessee, and I walked away. I pumped my gas and then I went and walked and sat on this little cement wall um, and had my feet in the grass and suddenly had this incredible I was just 
I needed God and, and had this inc- such a sensation. I didn't hear an audible voice. I didn't feel a physical touch. But the only way I can describe it is an obvious presence descended on me in such an undeniable way that um, I remember in the moment saying, Braxton, on the basis of this experience, you never have to really experience doubt again. Now, of course, I have experienced doubt. It's one of the enemy's favorite uh, tools against the faithful. But it was, it was unbelievable. And it was so powerful. So I, I had that experience. Um, you, could, you could try to explain that away, but it went way beyond um, the typical experience of worship that I think is shared. I think this was something more. And because I think there was something more there, I think that when I'm having a, a prayer time or whatever, where I'm experiencing something more like what people experience in other contexts or in other religions, where they're exercising that capacity to worship, let's say, I think that mine is going a bit deeper because I'm aware of these experiences that go way deeper, though I've not had them often. Um, And so, you know, but here's the other side of that. Christians should not feel like second class citizens and atheists shouldn't doubt the truth of Christianity because they themselves have not had such experiences. Because I cited Jonathan McClatchy for a reason. Not everyone has those experiences. And to that point, I had gone over, you know, two and a half decades without ever having had an experience to that degree. So uh, what's it like to feel God? Well, it depends. But the idea that other religions have that too isn't a problem because I think we're set up to connect with God, set up to worship. And I think you can use that wrongly. So I hope that that's helpful in answering. Another thing I would say lastly on that point is to say that many times what you can do is notice the religiously informed theater in which the thing occurs. Uh, For instance, um, it may be that it's at exactly the moment you need it to come or um, something like that. It's 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 sometimes it's a little too specific or a little too uh, appropriate or right. It's it's just it's it's one of those things that I've said this about prayer Uh, standing on the outside. You can criticize it and that's fine. We're not offering this as an apologetic. We're not offering our experience of God as a proof that you can have access to why you should believe that it's true. But once you are a Christian, uh, and, and again, this may take decades, and you, ex- and you experience it enough times, something like that, then it becomes unmistakable. And uh, though it's not an apologetic for anyone else, for you personally, it serves as powerful evidence. Um, so I hope that that is helpful in answering. Um, last clip I think we have is on the voice of God, which is a similar question. Number seven, how do you distinguish the voice of God from your own thoughts? This one is so similar to number six that I'd almost consider them parts of the same question, but there are significant enough difference that I thought it was worth treating them separately. Whereas Feeling God's presence often just amounts to emotional communion with God and assurance He's with you, and not much more needs to come of it. Thinking you've actually heard directions from God is a totally different animal. Similar to question 6, I'd ask Christians to introspect on what's going on in their heads when they hear God speaking to them. What preparation do they need to start hearing God's voice? What does it sound like? For most Christians, God's voice comes in the form of impressions or suggestions. It takes preparation to start receiving them, and they're trained to use discernment to sort his voice from their own. But why would God communicate this way? If he has important things to say to you, and wants to be sure you hear him correctly, why make you go through this process that has potential for you mistaking your thoughts for his voice and vice versa? And if discernment enters into the picture, by what process do you filter God's thoughts from your own? In my experience, Christians are taught to judge whether something is the voice of God by making sure it agrees with their understanding of Scripture, and they're encouraged to take the counsel of older believers, especially older, wiser believers, into account. It sounds like there's a certain amount of wisdom in this, and I can appreciate how it anchors Christians in the sanity of surrounding voices. But are you really doing anything other than filtering your own wandering thoughts through a body of existing theology as an exercise in training your own mind to tell you what you already believe? at best spurring random flashes of inspiration that you risk misunderstanding or blowing out of proportion? Or if not, and this really is the core question, can you describe the difference between this activity and how you hear the voice of God? Yeah, there's a lot actually to appreciate here. Um, I've made similar points that I think that particularly a certain kind of Christian will have their prayer time 
and they will pray and then they will wait to see if they hear God's voice because they've been told, even though the Bible nowhere says this, that prayer is a two-way conversation. And so they'll pray and then they'll listen and then they won't hear anything. And then the person will think, hey, wait a minute. Uh, didn't I, I had a thought just then, could that have been the voice of God? It wasn't very powerful, but then, Hey, it's a still small voice after all, right? Maybe that was it. And so the Christian, uh, comes to believe that's God speaking to them. This by the way is how some cults begin. So be careful. <laughs> Another thing that's a little bit better does involve scripture, uh, but it involves the person randomly opening the Bible and putting their finger down somewhere in the text and expecting God to speak that way. Not that he can't, God can do whatever he wants. But when you do that, the person then has read something in the Bible, maybe a word, maybe a phrase. And again, a thought flutters past and they think this must be God speaking to me. Um, I think that a much more obvious way is to read the scripture regularly, uh, try to understand the nature of God, the nature of Christianity and what the apostles taught. And then when you face moments in life where uh, that wisdom is helpful in your making a decision, then you make that decision. Now, does God speak directly to people? I have reason to believe that he does, um, but I don't think that that's the most reliable way to hear from God. The most reliable way to hear from God is in his word. I don't hear God's voice in a specific way like some people claim to. The closest I've ever gotten to it was when on the night that I felt that God was leading me into the gospel ministry, um, I was at a youth event. And we were in Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and our youth group was in a fight. And uh, I, I, our youth pastor was frustrated, and he said, everyone just be quiet and bow your heads and pray. In fact, he might have even said something like, I don't really care if you really pray, just bow your heads and be quiet. Well, I wasn't involved in the argument that was taking place, and so I did pray. And I prayed that God would tell me or, or give me some answer about what I should do with my life. And I got this overwhelming impression. He asked, is it like an impression? Well, in this particular case, I had this overwhelming impression that I, I should go into the gospel ministry. But I told God it would take something much more specific if I was ever going to do that, because I had a father who was in ministry, and I didn't want to be in, in professional ministry or whatever you want to call it, full-time ministry. I, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to be a musician. That's really what I wanted to do. And so I said, God, you're going to have to give me something much more obvious. Now, what happened next, for some of you, you could laugh at, and that's fine, but it's something that really did happen to me, and you could interpret it as coincidence or whatever else. But this is where I'm talking about this religiously informed theater of the moment. I looked up, and immediately in front of me, because I was sitting on the front inside row of this small church we were in, and there on the commun communion table was inscribed, as there are on many communion tables, this do in remembrance of me. Well, when I had just asked God to give me uh, something very obvious that I should be in the gospel ministry, and then I saw that, to my mind, that was all I needed, and I knew it. And one of the reasons that I believe that was true and that I needed that was because it's not what I would have chosen for myself. In a sense, I didn't really want this. Some ministers of the gospel look at a pulpit and their mouth waters because they just can't wait to preach. But for me, it wasn't the case. I'm an introvert. I wasn't really wound up for it, but uh, I've done it, and God's blessed, and, and honestly, I wouldn't have ever chosen differently. Now I'm glad, but I wasn't then. Uh, did, was that God's voice? I don't know. Did God want me to do this? I'm convinced he did, uh, but I don't hear God's voice in an audible way like some people do. Um, but then again, we, we don't really offer that as a, a way to, to hear God's voice. You can sense in prophet, or we don't offer that, I'm sorry, as an apologetic, uh, the hearing of God's voice. Um, you can sense almost in prophet of Zod something like, it's a little too convenient if you're just saying it should be backed up by scripture and you should check it all by scripture and the wisdom of others around you. That's just too convenient. I mean, come on. Um, that And doesn't that filter out other influences? Well, first of all, it's going to be very hard in today's world to filter out non-Christian influences, so you shouldn't be too worried about that. Um, but if it seems convenient, yeah. But again, we're not offering this as a reason to believe. We don't believe Christianity is true on the basis of these things. We believe Christianity is true. Uh, some people do. But for those of us that are interested in having conversations on worldview— we're probably convinced Christianity is true now because of, yes, the internal witness of the Spirit that we think we have, but also because of arguments and evidence. And so to wrap up, I'd like to bring everything back to that. That's really the thing here. We believe Christianity is true, yes, because of personal experiences, but undergirded by arguments and reasons to believe, evidence. 
And so these questions that we have before us today about when did you first hear? What role did arguments have? What about other religions? Uh, how do you deal with these testimonials? And other religions have these testimonials. And how do you understand atheists? All of these questions are interesting and they're important. And he's right. We should think about them and talk about them. But they don't directly have anything to do with whether Christianity is true or not. And that's what I'm most interested in. So I've enjoyed this time that we've had together. I hope that if Prophet Abzad sees this, that he appreciates the tone with which it was brought. There's never any intention to insult or to uh, make fun of or hurt the individual. I think these are thoughtful questions, frankly. Um, but ultimately, I think that we have honest answers. And when it comes to why we believe what we believe, I'd rather have conversations about the arguments and evidence that I think we have. Um, so with that... If you'd like to support what we're doing, you can help us out at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. There you'll find five full seminary courses, seminary level courses on apologetics, major world views, um, major world religions, uh, apolog uh, contemporary apologetics, the problem of evil, all kinds of stuff there with PowerPoint, as well as a bunch of free books that I've written and maybe a couple that somebody else has written, um, extra episodes that we've never released. I've got one that I'm about to release this week and a lot of other stuff. I hope that you'll check it out. And with that, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.